Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When the scribes and the Pharisees complain that the Lord's disciples do not wash their hands, even if they are referring to Exodus chapter 30, their understanding of the washing of hands is rooted in ignorance and fundamentalism. When the Lord deals with the question of clean and unclean in the Bible, Do we really think he's talking about hygiene? Is that what God's teaching is telling us? Please wash up before you eat? Really? So does that mean that if you don't get sick from bread handled by dirty hands, you are righteous? Really? What spirit has disabled your brain such that you really believe that food contaminated from dirty hands is the measure of clean and unclean in the eyes of God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 10 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 315 of the Bible as Literature podcast, Fundamentalism. I'm going to say it again. Fundamentalism is a manifestation of the evil spirit in the Gospel of Matthew. When we talk about demon possession based on how the false spirit, the false teaching functions, very specifically here in Matthew, it is correct to say that fundamentalism functions the same way. This week I got a question from a listener about the walls of Jerusalem, and it led to a follow-up discussion of the claim made by many evangelicals that Trump is a manifestation of the biblical Cyrus, or Trump is like Cyrus, or God is using Trump like Cyrus. These claims that Jerusalem always had walls, so why don't we have walls around the U.S.? Or if God can use a foreign king in Ezra and Nehemiah, why can't he use Trump? These questions, these claims are not only based on a false premise, but I told the person asking me that the questions betray a kind of biblical illiteracy. The premise of the questions, the very premise, is not only anti-scriptural, but consigns the one asking it to paganism. There's this essentialism. If the king is anointed by God, he therefore can do no wrong. This is highly problematic because even when you read about Cyrus in Ezra Nehemiah, you can't say that Cyrus is good because he was anointed by God. 
if you say that Cyrus is good because he was anointed by God, then you are a true Persian. You're a true pagan Persian. However, if you say he was anointed by God, therefore he is beneath and subservient to the law of God, then your priorities are correct because the only correct reference is Scripture and God's teaching. That has to be the only way that you're able to proceed. If you do so, then when Cyrus says, it's good for Jerusalem to rebuild its wall, it's good for Jerusalem to rebuild its temple, you're required to go back through the prophets and see how they talk about walls and kings and temples. And you can see that anointing a wall as good might be problematic. For example, in Zechariah 2, God says, there will be no wall around Jerusalem, that I will be a wall of fire around Jerusalem. Okay, so if God says that he will be the fire and the wall around Jerusalem, why would we assume then that Cyrus's allowing a wall around Jerusalem is good? It's not scriptural. This is all rooted in scriptural illiteracy because people don't know what king means. They don't know the essential problem of the king that you find in 1 Samuel 8. They don't know the problem of a wall, which you see in Zechariah chapter 2. When Solomon builds the temple, he spends twice as much time building his own palace, showing that even when a king declares he's going to build a temple, it's always going to be the problem of the king that's going to be the root of the rot in that temple. In the rise of Scripture, Father Paul makes the point that just because God allows something doesn't mean he approves of the thing he is permitting. Ezra and Nehemiah, as we were discussing earlier, are held in tension with the biblical canon. It is not clear when taken in context of the whole, that the adventure of Ezra and Nehemiah to build an earthly Zion is what God wants, even if he allows it. Remember that the Old Testament is wrapped around the Ezekielian school, which locates Zion in the heavens. So what the heck are Ezra and Nehemiah doing? It's not clear that the Maccabean Wars are a miracle to be elevated. It's not clear. Yes, in the sense of Joshua and all of the violence of the Bible, the point is made that God achieves the victory. But once you say Trump is Cyrus, you are doing exactly what the characters in the story are doing. In a story that is held in tension, the test is whether or not God is your reference. If you say the foreign king is your reference, even if God sent him or allowed him to do what he's doing, you are already turning your back on God, which is the sin. So when you say Trump is Cyrus, you're turning your back on God and you're failing the test of the tension in which Ezra and Nehemiah are held within the canon. You cannot proof text even a book. You have to take scripture as a whole. The canon itself is significant. If you look at the Jewish canon and the way that the Jewish books are laid out, one shocking feature is that the Bible ends with the book of First and Second Chronicles. Right before that comes Ezra and Nehemiah. This might seem shocking, at first, because chronologically, 
Ezra Nehemiah comes after the final events of Second Chronicles, because Second Chronicles ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Is it significant that the canonizers of Scripture would put Ezra Nehemiah before this? Probably because it's counterintuitive. But look at what happens as a result. When you put Ezra Nehemiah before First and Second Chronicles, you have the building of Jerusalem and the walls in Ezra and Nehemiah. But the last word at the end of Second Chronicles is that Jerusalem and its walls can be destroyed at any time by the Lord. We have to remember that whatever king God might put in place, he can take out with the next king. Why? Because that king was unrighteous. I mean, as soon as we say that, well, it's okay for our president to do what he wants because he's Cyrus in the flesh, if you want to look at the history of kings in the book of First and Second Kings, every single one of them is brought down because of their ego, and God has to break them down until he finally just ends the entire dynasty. So if you want to know what a ruler is in biblical terms, you can't just read a few verses out of Ezra and Nehemiah. You have to read First and Second Chronicles. You have to read First and Second Samuel. You have to understand that the king is always going to fall because he's always going to follow his own ego instead of the law of the Lord. And following the king does not let his people off the hook. The people are always responsible for following the teaching no matter what. This is what is in Hosea 4. My people sin for lack of knowledge. Just because no one taught them the law doesn't even let them off the hook. If they sin, it's because of lack of knowledge, but is still sin and is still counted against them. So anyone who would follow an earthly king, because that earthly king's anointing must mean that they're good and must mean that they're approved by God, is not reading scripture because the kings fall every single time, Jerusalem falls every single time, the wall falls every single time, and it's with this foreign king and that foreign king, it might be with an Assyrian, it might be with a Babylonian, it might be with a Persian, none of them are good. You have to understand that kingship is not good. Being the representative of a king on earth is not good because you're always under God's judgment to follow his law. In Deuteronomy, the priests are bound to read a copy of the Torah to the king when they come into the land. Because even if you're a king, you're under a law. You are not above the law. The law of God is over everyone, and everyone will be judged. And just following the king is not an excuse. Following orders will not suffice when it comes to Judgment Day. In the story of the Bible, forget current events, forget history. In the story of the Bible, sycophancy towards Cyrus is blasphemy. The Lord sends a foreign king to put you in your place. It's bad news because he's telling you that you're not special. He's telling you he can make anyone do what he wants them to do. It's deeply problematic in the story then to suddenly give your allegiance to Cyrus because God allowed him to give you what you want. Because God's objective is to teach you that the only thing that matters is God's will. Once you give your allegiance to Cyrus, instead of learning the lesson that God is teaching through Cyrus, you are saying that it is a wall made with your hands, that it is a temple and a city of your making and construction, and a king of your choosing. 
once you do that in the Bible, you are under the judgment of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Game over. So in order for you to say that Trump is your Cyrus, you have to first begin by misreading Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's very serious because people are dying because of this stupidity. Fundamentalism is a disease, it's a demonic spirit, and it can only be cast out by the difficult work of hearing Scripture and submitting to it. There's a reason why it's particularly important for me to go after Trump, not because of Trump himself, because any of this can apply to Obama as your savior, or Clinton as your savior, or Bernie Sanders as your savior. It's always going to be problematic no matter which king you decide to anoint with your will. The reason this is where we need to attack is not because of Trump and not because of my like or dislike of Trump. It's because people who are my people in that they claim to follow Scripture use Scripture in order to support this king. If they were using Scripture to support Obama, I would have just as many problems with it because it's a short-sighted reading of Scripture. It's not about Trump. It's not about Obama. It's about obedience and subservience to the Word of God. I did not hear people using Scripture to uphold Obama. Maybe I wasn't listening, but I didn't hear it. So I was much less adamant about attacking this point of view. But when I hear it so often used to anoint this president, any president, as God's will on earth, then I have a big problem with it. And I want to thank this listener for their question. It's providential in its timing because of where we are in Matthew chapter 15. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It reminds me of Tarazi Tuesdays. <laughs> you have to hear scripture and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. There's a reason why Jesus starts with here, because there's a problem with lip service, and this is exactly what he's attacking. It's the lip service that you're paying. It's the fact that you can say, oh, so-and-so is a good person. Oh, so-and-so is a great person. Oh, so-and-so is really doing the right thing. This is BS. This is malarkey. This is you letting yourself off the hook with lip service. If they're doing such a good job, if that's so good that they're doing it, why are you not doing it? It's the lip service that I hear, oh, I'm doing the best I can. God understands my intentions. But that person over there, they're clearly not doing the right thing. How come you're talking about your intentions, but you're not talking about their intentions? But more importantly, why are you talking about their actions and not about your actions? It's the lip service of you making these empty statements that are devoid of content, that are devoid of wisdom, and devoid of Scripture. Fundamentalism is a disease of the human mind and a manifestation of demonic possession in the Gospel of Matthew. Because it shuts your brain down. It makes you stupid. Do you really think that it's what you put into your mouth? Do you really think that eating something that breaks a religious rule makes you unclean? Do you really think that? 
do you really think that putting a piece of food in your mouth has any bearing on anything? The question is what you say and what you do. It's what comes out of your mouth. When you demean or ridicule another human being, the way a Roman patrician might do in the classical world, when you refer to your brother and sister, who is a Greek or a Roman, as being unrighteous or a Gentile dog, when you twist the words of Scripture to suit your worldly purpose, to enhance the glory of men instead of the glory of the teaching of Jesus Christ, the way in the book of Acts. When you open your mouth to say something that contradicts God's teaching, this is what makes you unclean. And I think your point, Dr. Benton, that in a very specific way, it's about the uncleanness of lip service in Matthew of saying, Kyrie, Kyrie, Lord, Lord. I don't understand your problem, We told everybody how much we loved you. What about the children in the cages at the border? Well, but in the Bible, there are walls around Jerusalem, Lord. (laughs) This is called unclean speech. It's filthy speech, friends. And to borrow Father Paul's favorite expression, it's high time we called a spade a spade. You want to know what vulgarity is? I just gave you an example. Vulgarity is when Obama can speak so smoothly and talk so clearly and so highly about human rights and about friendship among nations and can deport more people than anyone before him and can develop a drone program that the world has never seen before, which is under judgment. Now, with Jesus in this example, I can tell that he's frustrated because he has been teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching, and he has been putting his blood, sweat, and tears into teaching, wandering through empty deserts, wandering on top of seas. And these scribes and Pharisees say, why is he not washing his hands? Really, of everything that Jesus has said, this is what you're going to address? The Pharisees are looking for a way to undermine Jesus, but they won't take on his teaching. They won't hear and understand. They won't listen to what's coming out of his mouth. They're just going to watch to see how he eats. By ignoring what Jesus is teaching, they're condemning themselves. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Honest to God, Richard, this had to have been written for us. I mean, I know that's not true. I know we have to understand the historical context and understand the addresses of the text. I'm just saying, nothing changes under the sun. Everybody gets offended when you say what needs to be said. Everybody is offended today, but most especially the intelligentsia in the West, because they can't figure out why everyone's angry that they've been giving lip service to high ideals but at the same time, disenfranchising the working class. Now, I'm not interested in politics. I really am not. And I don't participate in American politics because I'm a citizen of the heavenly city. But it's incumbent upon us to challenge people to use their brains and to hear and submit to Scripture. I mean, perhaps the Pharisees were scandalized, which is the word in Greek. They were scandalized because it sounded like Jesus said that the teaching of the fathers was not important which could be the case. What Jesus is doing is saying it all depends on your teaching because the teaching is under judgment 
of the Lord's teaching, the Lord's Torah, which goes back to what we were saying in the introduction. The reference point is Scripture. Jesus undermined them by saying, you're teaching your traditions and ignoring the Lord's teaching. The second part that's funny is that the disciples were so concerned about not scandalizing the Pharisees. This is the thing that they misunderstand about Jesus, which we've been saying since chapter one. Jesus has no time. He doesn't argue. He doesn't explain. He teaches. If you don't understand the teaching, if he believes that you're of good faith, he might spend some time reiterating what he's teaching, but then he just moves on. He doesn't have time. If someone wants to attack him on the basis of washing hands and is ignoring his teaching, the faster he can scandalize those people and get them out of his hair, the faster he can get back to teaching people who are actually interested in hearing what he has to say, who will hear and understand. Look, we said it at the beginning of the podcast with respect to the walls of Jerusalem and Cyrus and Ezra and Nehemiah. In Matthew... The Pharisees take a rule that suits their worldly purpose, which is the building up of their power, their authority, their security, their tribe, and their nation. And they lift up this tradition of their elders in order to impose it on anyone who won't bend the knee to their human will. They are constructing a Jerusalem made with human hands. If you want to understand where Scripture falls on the tension between the canon and Ezra and Nehemiah, here's your answer. You can't build your own city. It's the city not made with human hands. It's the heavenly city from Ezekiel. So Ezra and Nehemiah are in the canon, just like the Pharisees and the scribes are in the canon here. They're part of the story. But Matthew is very explicit about where the biblical canon falls. It's not where Matthew falls. It's where the biblical canon falls. But people don't submit to the text, so they hear what they want, and they take from this pressure an interpretation that puts them squarely on the side of their tribe, their nation, their power, their agenda. I'm talking about Christians. Don't make out of this some kind of weird conspiracy theory. Christian fundamentalism is really destructive because you are building, again, the things that God destroyed in the Bible. So, of course, the Pharisees are offended. They make the classic mistake. They take their understanding as the reference point. They don't take Scripture as the reference point. They don't judge Jesus according to Scripture. They don't judge Jesus' teaching according to Scripture. They don't judge the words coming out of their mouth according to Scripture. The deep biblical illiteracy even reaches to these professional interpreters of the Bible, the scribes and the Pharisees. Everyone has to submit to Scripture, not use Scripture. They're undermining Jesus' mission, which is to bring this teaching to all the nations. And these scribes and Pharisees are just trying to shut them down and shut them down and shut them down so that the Word doesn't reach the nations. They want to control it. They want to own it. They want to possess it. And it's just like the land, it only belongs to God, and it's going to go to whom God wants it to go. The point of Deuteronomy is not that violence is okay or genocide is acceptable. 
the point of Deuteronomy is that if violence befalls the Gentiles, it can also befall you at the hand of the Lord. The point of Joshua is not that it's okay to declare war on your enemies. That's not the point. The point of Joshua is that only the Lord can win victory for you. That's the point of the insertion of Melchizedek in Genesis. It's a recurring theme. But once you make it your point to serve your agenda, you are talking about the tradition of your elders in Matthew. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. And here, the operative word is heavenly, meaning that our king is in the heavens. He doesn't live on Pennsylvania Avenue. He does not have a residence in Rome or Jerusalem. His city and his throne are in the heavens. And everything that a man says that does not pertain to the written will of that heavenly throne, not made by the hand of man, that is something false. It is a construction that will be swept away here in Matthew, uprooted in 1 Corinthians, put under the feet of the Messiah who comes in power. Because if it's not from the heavenly throne, it is against the heavenly throne. And this parable fits so well with the parable previously when Jesus was talking to his disciples about the field that was planted with weeds, with tares by the enemy at night. The servants were so concerned that there might be something impure, there might be some kind of tear that they want to go and uproot. And Jesus said, just wait, and we'll see how it ends up. On the last day, we're certainly going to uproot what is incorrect. But for now, we're not going to sort. And this is what Jesus is emphasizing here, is he's not in the business of sorting out who's right and who's wrong. He's going to say what he has to say to get the Pharisees off his back so he can continue teaching. He's going to shut down the peanut gallery and make sure that no one is interrupting him because he's got no time. When the disciples are concerned that the Pharisees are scandalized, I think that Jesus is a little bit happy that the Pharisees are scandalized because he won't have to deal with them as much. All these people who've got opinions and who've got things to say about, well, why don't you do it this way? Or why don't you do it like that? Jesus has no time for them. So if he can get them out of his way, it's clear sailing and he can just keep on moving. I love this next line. I'm going to just take the first three words before I read the whole verse together, Rich. Let them alone. <laughs> Just let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is saying, you know, yalla, bye, whatever. These people are silly. Ignore them. We don't have time. Let the blind lead the blind into darkness. We have to sow the instruction so that the light of the Torah becomes a light to the nations. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. Don't fall in the trap of saying that your church, your group is a light to the world. Don't do it, because you're not, because you're unrighteous according to God's instruction. The light is the seed of instruction that is given to us to sow, which proceeds from the Heavenly Father. This fits so well with that parable that I mentioned a moment ago, the tares and the wheat. 
guess what? Their teaching is dumb and dumb people are going to follow it. So if you just leave them alone, they're all going to be in ditches while we're continuing to teach. Let them sit in the ditches. If they insist on leading people and they don't know what they're talking about, and the people are enthralled by these people who don't know what they're talking about, let them all end up in the ditch. They'll be fine. It's their problem. I don't have time to lead people who aren't hearing and understanding. On the last day, it's all going to be sorted out. It's not my job to sort it out now. My job is not correcting people or leading blind people or convincing people who don't want to listen or convincing teachers who insist on arguing with me over petty things. I just teach my teaching. Let them all end up in the ditch. As you said, Father, yell a bye. <laughs> yell a bye. That should be the new ending to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.